working our way through Hebrews. This morning we're in chapter 2 and picking up in verse 10. And so uh, we're, we're going to consider the author of Hebrews is quoting uh, the Old Testament again, as he often does, and especially here early in the book. And so we're going to uh, take a look at those quotations and the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. Uh, he's still in this, this context with the angels, and, uh, and he's going to wrap that up at the end of chapter 2. And so, um, and, and that, even that theme of speaking and being a messenger is going to carry into the beginning of 3. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started with Hebrews 2. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word this morning, the comfort that it is to us, the instruction that it is to us, uh, and we pray that we would be able to say together with the psalmist that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we've been working uh, our way through Hebrews 2. And some of the, the big picture things that we don't want to lose sight of as we get down into the weeds is, uh, is that what he's asserting about Christ, the author of Hebrews, what he's asserting about Christ is that Christ is the ultimate messenger. Right? This is why he begins by making reference to prophets. Uh, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now he is spoken by a son. So he puts Christ in contrast to the prophets and then he puts Christ in contrast to the angels. And again, that's not because there was some uh, cultic belief on the part of Jews about the deity of angels or something like that. Uh, it, it, there's, I, I'm not even going to speak to what the Jews may or may not have believed about angels. That's not the point. The one thing that everybody did understand about them was that they were messengers. Uh, that when an angel appears in the Old Testament, usually that angel is appearing to deliver a word from God. Uh, and if you think about it from our, uh, particularly our fallen human perspective, uh, angels are, are greater than us in many ways, right? Uh, when an angel appears in the text, usually whoever they appear to passes out, or no matter how orthodox they are and how faithful they are, they fall down and instinctively worship the angel that's standing before them and has to be corrected. Uh, and so, what the author of Hebrews is asserting is that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. Not just greater uh, existentially, they are amazing and powerful and overwhelming and, and all the rest, and Jesus is greater, but that what makes them great is that they are the servants of God, that God has made them as they are, and that when they appear, they appear as a messenger from God. And the author of Hebrews says Christ is greater, right? So some of the themes that we see here is, uh, is Christ as one who speaks. There's a lot of language in chapters 1 and 2 about speaking, uh, about messages being delivered. Uh, that's a key element in the opening chapters of Hebrews. The other thing that's much easier to miss is the, uh, the degree to which the exodus and the law of Moses are on the mind of the author of Hebrews as he writes. He will make explicit references, but there are a lot of implicit references. Sometimes, like we're going to see this morning in the, the just the, is it 10? Um, yeah, in verse 10, right off the bat in this morning's reading, it's a single word. There's one word that is a tip of the hat to the Exodus account, right? Uh, we'll look at that in a minute. 
And so it, sometimes it's hard to see, and it becomes easier to see if you will just keep reminding yourself that the author of Hebrews is steeped in the law of Moses. He's steeped in the Old Testament, and he's steeped particularly in the narrative of salvation that was used in the Old Testament by God to reveal his purposes, All right? That Old Testament story, you, if somebody surely, hopefully, has told you this before, or you've seen it yourself, uh, the entire Old Testament story of the Exodus is a microcosm of redemptive history. It, it is history. It's a true story. It really happened. But God was orchestrating those events both to accomplish through those events a particular salvation for his people and to show all of his people throughout all of redemptive history, including our future, to show all of his people what it is that he's doing on a cosmic scale so that his people were slaves in Egypt even as we are slaves to sin. And God delivers them from that slavery in Egypt ultimately right, with this, this death of the firstborn, which anticipates Christ, uh, commemorated by the faithful on that night, by the slaughter of the Passover lamb and consuming that lamb together, the blood over the door that indicated their faith. Uh, and from there, God doesn't just get them out of Egypt and say, well, there you go. You guys have been crying out for deliverance for a very long time. There's your deliverance. And so, you know, whatever. You guys have a, a nice eternity, have a nice life. No, they are immediately told that they will be taken to a promised land, right? Uh, this is a promise that's not new at this point. It was made to Abraham all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis. And so they are delivered from captivity, from slavery, by means of that lamb, symbolically, to be delivered to the promised land, which is described in the Old Testament narrative in the same terms that the new heavens and the new earth are described. That's what it, it represents, is the new heavens and the new earth. It represents our being together with God forever, and God is in the midst of them, and there's all kinds of symbols we can't possibly cover everything today. We couldn't cover everything if we spent months just looking at those symbols. All of it, though, pointing us to Christ. The author of Hebrews is steeped in all of this. He knows his Old Testament very well. He knows this narrative, and he understands that that narrative was intended to point us to a deeper truth, a greater truth. It's not just telling us a story of something that happened, and from that story we can derive some, some ideas about what kind of God it is that we serve. But he understands, the author of Hebrews, that that larger narrative of redemptive history is a narrative that he belongs to, and so do we. And so he's looking back to that Old Testament narrative in order to understand that bigger story, that greater truth. And he keeps sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly making allusion to that old story in order to help us understand who we are in the new story. And so take a look at, uh, at Hebrews 2, verse 10. And let's, uh, just for the sake of, of getting a running start, let's start in the middle of verse 8 where the quote ends. The author of Hebrews says, "...now putting everything in subjection to him," that's Christ, he left nothing, he, the Father, left nothing outside of his, the Son's, control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Man, that's a statement for this week, isn't it? We don't see everything in subjection to Him yet, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, uh, in the first century a shocking word to use to describe the crucifixion of Christ, because the main stumbling block in the gospel is that God died on a cross. Uh, it's, it's absurd. It's offensive. To die on a cross was to die under the curse of God, which Jesus did, right? He, he became a curse for us. He took the curse upon himself and suffered the wrath of God on the cross. But the, the Jewish mind, taken generally, couldn't grasp that. It was, it was, a, it was a, a sign of God's indignation and his wrath to suffer that kind of, of horrifying and, uh, and uh, exposing death, very public. You've probably heard it said before, but in Roman law, you weren't allowed to crucify a Roman citizen. It was too degrading. Only non-citizens, only slaves were allowed to suffer that penalty. It was public for a reason. It was public to say to everyone who saw it, do what you're told, or you get this. It was meant to, to be a significant deterrent to anyone who would stand up against the Roman Empire. And so, for the author of Hebrews here intend to say, for it was fitting, is extremely countercultural. It was fitting that he, and it gets a little confusing with the pronouns here, but he is the Father, for it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. It was fitting that Jesus should, made, should be made perfect through suffering. Perfect here, not a reference to necessarily moral perfection, but perfect being a reference to uh, complete. Uh, everything that Christ was intended to do and be in his earthly ministry comes to its final fulfillment and, and perfect realization in the suffering of Christ. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, uh, the, uh, the Greek here says, um, from one, all. Translators typically translate that, all have one source. All are from one. That's a, a difficult statement, especially if we try to approach it as systematic theologians with a Trinitarian mindset. Uh, but I, I don't think that's what the author's doing directly here, and I think that the key to that is verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, we share with one another in our humanity, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things. So I think what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, he's saying we all share in this one flesh. And in that sense, we all have one source because all flesh is made by God. And inasmuch as Christ took on full humanity, that humanity was made by God. Christ is fully human with everything that that means. 
And that's why the author of Hebrews tells us he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ is a brother to us uh, who are in him, who are trusting in him, believing in his word, believing in his gospel, this good news. He is a brother to us, not merely in, a, in the sense of sympathy uh, or common cause, but a brother to us in as much as he is fully human. Fully human and more, right? He's, it's also because we are in him. Christ is not brother to every human being, but is brother to those of us who are trusting in as much as he is human and is for us. And so the author of Hebrews now is going to begin quoting some Old Testament passages uh, to support his argument that, that Christ calls us brother, that he shares something vital with us, right? Our humanity, and not only our humanity, but our hope and our faith in God. So I'm going to pause real quick before we pick up with verse 12 and start looking at these quotes. Questions? Observations? Yeah. No, no, the Greek doesn't require it. Uh, it's the logic of the passage that makes most interpreters suggest that this is the Father, uh, and that the, the phrase, for whom and by whom all things exist, which is elsewhere used of Christ, uh, can also be used of the Father, that they share this, this truth about who they are uh, in common with one another. That's generally how people approach it. That said, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the only other argument in favor of that reading is, uh, is the, the logic of he should make the founder of their salvation perfect uh, does incline us to think that it's one person making another person perfect. And elsewhere in Scripture, that seems to be how, like Paul, for example, speaks of Christ being sanctified, being called, being set apart. Uh, it's the Father doing this with and, and through Christ. Having said all of that, uh, there's, there's nothing in the grammar. Uh, there's also very little in, uh, in our theology that demands that it be read that way. Uh, we could read it for it's fitting that he, Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make himself, right? But rather than himself, the author of Hebrews wants us to know something else about him should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, even when we stop and we think about, did, did Christ make himself perfect, or did the Father make him perfect? And you kind of go, well, yeah, both. Both things are true, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a strange sort of uh, almost backing into the question of sanctification. Do I, 
Do I work and therefore I'm sanctified, or is God at work in me sanctifying me? And the answer is yes, right? Uh, I love Packer's uh, way of trying to unpack that, an unfortunate term, sorry. Um, J.I. Packer, uh, the, uh, he says, it's not that God works and I work. It's that God works and therefore I work. And this is how we make sense of Paul in Philippians, right? When he says uh, that we should work out our faith with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, right? Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it's interesting that we would have this tension here um, in as much as we have the same tension coming at it from the other direction. But yeah, you, you're certainly not violating any Greek grammar, uh, you're not absolutely violating any logic or theology uh, to read it that way, but most interpreters uh, have read it the other, the other way, that it's the Father. This is just an observation, but you can't help but go back to Gethsemane. You know, what Jesus was praying to the Father that was going to happen, that's really what's, mm-hmm. you know, the same topic. Yeah, John 17 and the high priestly prayer. Um, Gives us insight on this as well. That's right. Anything else before we jump into the quotes? Okay, the first quote is from Psalm 22. Uh, I don't know that it requires a lot of explanation. It's fairly straightforward, right? The author of Hebrews is claiming that Christ calls us brother, implied as sister. I've, I've explained this before, but it probably ought to be explained again that in the original language, words were gendered, right? So we don't do this much anymore in English. Uh, We used to, but it's fallen away, uh, out of use. And so in the original language here, the Greek, uh, all nouns are gendered. And then all adjectives are gendered to match the noun that they modify. And so uh, typically the way that they would speak is if it was a group of men, then they used the masculine to describe the group of men. If it was a group of women, they used the feminine to describe that group of women. But if it was a mixed group, they used the masculine because they had to pick one and neuter wasn't appropriate, right, to a room full of people. Uh, We don't become its when we're gathered together. Uh, we, We are still hims and hers. And so they used the masculine to refer to to the, the whole group of people. Uh, and so often, uh, so the NIV made a big splash in the early 2000s when they came out with the uh, today's NIV, TNIV, because they went through and they, they produced what they referred to as a, uh, I forget what the term was, gender-sensitive translation or something like that, made a lot of people really upset. Um, and it, there's, there's probably a few choices that they made that, uh, that weren't justified. But what they were trying to do is everywhere that the, the text says son, uh, talking not about Christ, right, it, that's always appropriate, but, but where Paul is speaking to a group and he uses masculine pronouns, they went in and tried to, to adjust the translation into the English to capture the fact that women are included, right? It's actually, surprisingly, and I know that it would bore 99% of you for us to talk about it, it's actually really difficult to do that. Uh, because something ends up having to change uh, in ways that, that actually can be meaningful. Anyways, with that in mind, all this language, like bringing many sons to glory, is not exclusive language. It's, it's not referring only to men. 
but also to women. Um, and so, uh, likewise, at the end of verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brothers uh, or sisters, right? It applies. It's the same. Uh, interestingly, does any, does any account in the Gospels come to mind here? Can you think of something that happened in the Gospel accounts That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Somebody manages to get a message to him that outside the crowd are his mothers and his mother and his brothers, uh, and the the implication is you need to stop what you're doing and go out there and see what they need. And Jesus' response is, "Who are my mother and my brothers? You, you are my family. You are my mother and my brothers and my sisters." Right. Uh, and so that's Christ engaged in what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. But he's going to look back, starting in Psalm 22, and show us instances where he says this. But it's not only important that Christ calls us brother, that he calls us sister. It's why and how it is that he can call us brother and sister. Right? So he quotes here from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Christ fulfills this in his earthly ministry. Uh, he, he tells us the gospel. He tells us that he is sent by the Father and what he is sent to accomplish. And so he did what he says here. I will tell of your name to my brothers. He did this. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Uh, and, you know, you think of the, uh, the time in the synagogue where Christ stands up, as was his right as a man in the synagogue, and reads from Isaiah, and then says, on today, he says, this is fulfilled in your presence, and he sits down. And you get one of these moments that the text is really subtle about, but if you stop, it says all eyes were on him. So you kind of get this sense of him saying it, sitting down, and in dumbstruck just unbelief. Everybody's just looking at him, and there's just this, this pause, this awkward moment in the room, right? But in the context of Psalm 22, which the author of Hebrews, I believe, is bringing in by choosing this quote, it's not just that Jesus here says uh, that, that in the mouth of Jesus are placed these words in Psalm 22 that he will tell uh, his, uh, tell God's name to his brothers. Uh, but in the context of Psalm 22, uh, he is that suffering servant of Isaiah, right? In what context will he tell us of the name of God? In the context of purchasing us for himself by his blood. Amen. Yeah. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the Exodus Yeah, thank you for bringing back to that. Look at what he says in 10. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. What's the action here? In bringing many sons to glory. That phrase, and particularly the verb bringing, and the idea that what he's bringing is sons, implied daughters, uh, to glory, 
that's language, very reminiscent of God, uh, which, who in the Old Testament is said to carry his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, right? Uh, throughout the Exodus narrative. And we forget it because we're told it happened, but we're not constantly told that it's happening. But throughout the Exodus and even the wandering, God is leading his people uh, a cloud by day and fire by night, right? Yes. Yeah, this verb of bringing is used about the Exodus a lot in the Old Testament both in God saying this is what I will do and, and saying this is what I did and people, prophets, looking back to the Exodus event and talking about God bringing his people. You know, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, right? Uh, and so the author of Hebrews here, again, this is just one of those really subtle, uh, I, and I don't want to suggest the author of Hebrews didn't do it on purpose, but you can almost see him not doing it on purpose. He's just so steeped in the Exodus account and so consumed with an understanding of who Christ is and what he's done and who we are uh, and how that mirrors the Exodus account that he's using even the same verbs to describe what it is that God is doing with us and for us as we're used in that Exodus account. Mm-hmm. And it's, yes, and he's particularly in that mindset here as he writes. Um, and it's important for us, right? Uh, think about the truth that we understand, because in the same way that God brought Israel out of Egypt and carried them through the, the wilderness and to the promised land, God brings us out of slavery to sin and carries us to the new heavens and the new earth, right? Um, there's a lot of truth in that one verb, that it's God who brings, right? Um, ought to be the source of confidence for us that it's him doing the work, him who has promised to do it, and even as he kept that promise in the Old Testament, and, and more so, he keeps that promise for us. So that first quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, is, uh, is on the lips of Christ in Psalm 22, not only calling us brothers, but doing so because he is the Messiah. Verse 13, you have to go back to the context in order to understand how this fits, because, and again, I will put my trust in him. How does that support the idea that he calls us brothers and isn't ashamed to call us brothers? Uh, I will put my trust in him. What in the world's happening there? Well, that's Isaiah 8 uh, that I, I told you in the sermon I was studying this week, uh, this passage in Hebrews, and went back to 8 where he's quoting. Uh, and uh, this morning in the sermon I started reading in 16, but it really begins in 11 uh, is where we, we want to start reading. And, um, and so, uh, it's, um, let's, let's just start at 11. This is Isaiah chapter 8. 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall, snare, shall be snared and taken. And we start there because it's important for us to understand the context of what we're about to read, that the people of God are rejecting the prophecy of Isaiah. And God is saying to Isaiah, don't go the way they went. Trust in me. This is what I'm about to do. He says, I will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right? So he's, he's describing the work he's going to do when? In Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus Christ is the, the rock. He's the stone. He's the offense. He's the one that causes the stumbling. They stumble over Christ. Because Israel will not receive the word of Isaiah, the word of God through Isaiah. In 16, uh, Isaiah says, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. And this is where the quote comes from. I will put my trust in him. How is it that the author of Hebrews understands this as an evidence of, a proof of, his solidarity with us as brothers and sisters? How does the context in Isaiah get us there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that ought to jump out at us is the author of Hebrews is putting this quote in the, in the mouth of Christ. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he quotes the psalm. I mean, there's something there that ought to, to draw us up short. The author of Hebrews is expressly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit insisting that the voice of Psalm 22 is the voice of Christ. And likewise, he says, and again, i.e., we, we could read it this way correctly. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will put my trust in him. So now we go back to Isaiah, right? And when Isaiah says, and I will hope in him, the author of Hebrews says that he speaks as Christ. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I actually read uh, in a commentary this week an expression. It's the first time I'd ever seen it said quite that way. Uh, and uh, he, he called physical Israel, he referred to them as empirical Israel. I'd never quite seen it put that way before. Empirical Israel versus spiritual Israel. Um, yeah, so think about this. In the context of Hebrews 1 and 2, Christ is what? He's a son, but his work could be summed up in a single idea, a single verb, a single action. He's what? He's a prophet. He comes as a messenger of God. And so when the author of Hebrews puts these words of Isaiah in the mouth of Christ, Isaiah in Isaiah 8 is a type of Christ, isn't he? And what's happening in Isaiah 8? Isaiah is crying out and nobody will listen. And so what does Isaiah say? In the face of a people who are obstinate and will not hear, Isaiah says, I will put my hope in him. Right? And, and therefore, that's not only the author of Hebrews, and this is where it all comes home, the author of Hebrews is putting these words of Isaiah in the mouth of Christ, and in the same way that Christ puts his hope in God in the midst of these circumstances, we, because we are in Christ, also put our hope in God. Think about the remnant that was there at the time that Isaiah was prophesying. Those who were hearing the prophecy and believing it, because there is always a remnant. They too would have, have been in solidarity with Isaiah, saying, I will put my hope in him. And so that's how the author of Hebrews gets to this being support for uh, the solidarity of Christ with us. That, that Christ would call us brother and sister and not be ashamed to do so. It's because Christ is leading in this. I will put my trust in him, and we are following in this, also putting our trust in him. We're in solidarity with Christ because Christ is having to trust the Father, and we are having to trust the Father. And if you work that backwards, the other direction, what a comfort. Do you have to trust God? Is it hard? Christ had to trust God. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Christ had to trust the Father. And we have to trust the Father. And Christ has shown us how to do it, and he's done it with us and, and, and does it for us, right? And so the author of Hebrews here is, uh, is pointing to that solidarity we have with Christ. That Christ himself trusted in the Father, just as we have to trust in the Father. It's part of his being fully human. The next quote also from Isaiah 8. All right, go back to, to Isaiah 8, and in the very next line, actually, where I stopped reading, he goes on. So I'm going to pick up in 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Now, Isaiah is talking about two actual children here. In the, in the context of the opening chapters of Isaiah, God has given children to Isaiah and instructed them to name these children in such a way that it reveals the hope that is ours. 
So God gives children to Isaiah. And already we've seen the author of Hebrews acknowledge that Isaiah is a type of Christ inasmuch as he is a prophet of God who speaks the word of God faithfully. And to that prophet, who is a type of Christ, God has given children. And in the same way, God has given children to Christ. We are those that belong to Christ. Behold, I and the children God has given me, the author of Hebrews says there in verse 13. So we've got to go back into, this is an example of how sometimes it's not just laying on the surface. Good Bible study, really sitting down and digging, requires us to, to stare at something for a while. And when you see an Old Testament quote, you know, sometimes it's like Psalm 22. Okay, I can see very clearly how that is Christ saying that we're his brothers. But a lot of times it's like verse 13. And you've got to go back into the context and study the context carefully, think carefully about it, in order to see how it is that the author is using it. Okay, I'm going to pause again. Um, and that might actually be a good place to stop today. We're, we've got a few minutes left, so uh, we may kind of look ahead a little bit. But any questions, comments, observations? Billy. Yeah, I think there's a both and on that phrase, seal the teaching. And we often see that in the prophets. I think the, the most immediate intention is that confirmation of, of his own office of prophet, right? If a prophet says that something is true and it's false, then that is a false prophet, and under the law of Moses, he's to be stoned, right? Uh, and so what, what he's saying here is, uh, is I have, I've given you the word of God and you've not believed it. That word is going to be preserved among my disciples until it's fulfilled. And then you will see that I was telling you the truth and that you are guilty of unbelief. So I think there's that element. I also think this belongs together with the verses you referred to in Isaiah 6 um, and uh, elsewhere in the the Old Testament that speaks of a famine of the hearing of the word of God, uh, a famine which... Uh, appears historically to have ultimately been uh, that, that what we sometimes call um, the 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. There's this period at which God stops speaking to his people, uh, at least in the ways that he had been. Uh, and Christ comes in, and really John the Baptist prior to Christ, right, preparing the way, uh, once again speaking to his people. And so I, I think that's also in mind here. If you will not listen, then God will, will stop speaking. He's going to seal the word, 
Uh, you, you get similar language in Daniel. Um, we're, uh, we're five minutes from being done, but I finally need to sit down. So, sorry. Forgot to grab my stool. Um, you see similar language in Daniel. Daniel is told to seal up the prophecy. Uh, you see uh, then in Revelation, the seal being broken on the scroll. Seals, seven seals being broken on the scroll. Um, all of this kind of being tied together thematically. So... Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much how we go about for us. We just go through the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Issue grace one No rock throwing today, please. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's kind of a, a second or even a third level, you know, because he's quoting from Isaiah 8, but not that verse in Isaiah 8, uh, and then you've got questions. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, and the Old Testament Hebrew that we work out of for translation purposes is the Masoretic text, uh, and the Septuagint uh, is uh, there are some differences between the Septuagint and the Hebrew, the Greek and the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And so um, that's something scholars wrestle with. Uh, often the New Testament authors, and I've mentioned it before, Hebrews often is quoting the Septuagint. Um, so it's a difficulty for us that we wrestle with. Um, let's look at, uh, at 14 and just get a sense of where he's going because his logic doesn't break cleanly here. Uh, he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And when he says the children, he's talking about all of us, right? What we have in common with one another is our humanity. And since we have our humanity in common, he, that is Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things. So he partook of our humanity. And though he was not a sinner and had, he didn't have original sin, uh, and so he was different from us in that respect, more human is what he was than we are because of our sin. Uh, nonetheless, he was subject to the fall. Uh, he, was, he was able to be wounded, uh, to, to get sick, and ultimately to die, right? And so he partook of the same things. Uh, which I take to be especially a reference to his suffering and dying. Because he goes right into the next line, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And uh, he's going to wrap up. We're going to come back and study these verses in more detail next week. 
But here he comes to the, the end of the angel section. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps. The logic is if he was helping angels, he would have been an angel. But he wasn't an angel. He was a human and therefore helping humans uh, and not just humans generally, but a particular subset of humans. What subset of humans? The offspring of Abraham. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which is not a genetic reference, but a spiritual reference in the same way that Paul in Romans 9 says, it's not as though everyone descended from Abraham belongs to Abraham, but it's the children of the promise that are the offspring of Abraham. And so it's a reference to that subset of humanity that belongs to the Abrahamic covenant. Another evidence that that Abrahamic covenant is still in effect Right? It hasn't been abrogated. It hasn't been done away with in favor of a new covenant. But what Ezekiel and Jeremiah refer to as the new covenant, and Christ himself refers to as the new covenant, is the final administration of that one covenant of grace, which begins in history with Abraham. This is why we care that we are the offspring of Abraham. Because otherwise I don't care. If there are no promises made to Abraham that are only mine if I'm his offspring, then I don't care. Uh, and it's not metaphorical. We are the true spiritual offspring of Abraham, and therefore, we are the ones that Christ helps. And you can be the offspring of Abraham if you will believe and repent. We are not the offspring of Abraham because we were good enough, smart enough, holy enough, spiritual enough. We wanted it bad enough. Uh, we are the offspring of Abraham, and because of that, we, may, we, uh, we have faith and repentance and reveal that we belong to him. Um, okay, we're out of time. So I meant to, uh, to remind everybody in worship during the announcements, uh, we've got Mike Finema this evening. Uh, we'll have our regular evening worship. Uh, and then this week, we will not have breakfast for men on Thursday morning, but we will be adding a Good Friday service. That information is in your order of worship. And, uh, and then next Sunday is corporate worship at the regular time with no Sunday school and no evening service. And I realize we haven't announced, I'm not sure we made an, an active decision. There will be childcare during worship? There is, excellent, okay. so. We will, have, we will have our usual child care that happens during a worship service next Sunday. But apart from the morning worship and the child care happening during that time, the rest of our Sunday is canceled for next week. And so uh, we did that largely uh, in acknowledgement that many people are trying to get home uh, to host family for an Easter meal. They may have family in town that evening and whatnot. So we're just going to, uh, to be done after worship on Sunday morning. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for, again, meeting us today by your word and spirit, and that we've come to this place, uh, and here we have seen Christ in one another. We have heard him proclaimed from his word. Uh, we have uh, been offered and taken hold of the hope that is ours in him and in him alone. And Father, we pray that we would carry these things out of this place that from here we would go back into our homes and this week into the places where we work and study uh, and live and, uh, and among the people that you have placed us in the midst of, Father, that we would go out into the world with this hope uh, that ringing in our ears would be this encouragement 
uh, that you are in solidarity with us in Jesus Christ, uh, that you are our refuge and our strength, uh, Father, that you are our hope uh, and our rest, and that you make us glad by Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.